Hello again, and welcome to our Governing Health Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Peregrine. We're pleased to have you with us. Well, it's the time of year when we try and take some stock of the leading developments of the prior 12 months and consider what lessons they have to offer us. And that can be a very valuable exercise for corporate directors, putting them in a better position from which to address the looming agenda items their boards face in 2023. For in corporate governance, as in many other things, it's kind of hard to know where you're going when you don't know where you've been. And for directors of healthcare companies, those governance trends range from the economy to the corporate social voice, from ESG to mission critical corporate risks, with many stops in between. And there's really no better person to lead us in this review than Professor Charles Elson, the highly regarded founding director of the Weinberg Center for Corporate Governance and Woolen Chair in Corporate Governance, retired at the University of Delaware. Professor Elson's resume is extraordinary. He's written extensively on the subject of boards of directors. He's a frequent contributor on corporate governance issues to multiple scholarly and popular publications, including the Wall Street Journal. He served on many of the National Association of Corporate Directors' key Blue Ribbon Commissions. Charles has served as vice chair of the ABA Business Law Section's Committee on Corporate Governance and as a member of its Committee on Corporate Laws. He's also served as a member of the Standing Advisory Group of the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, and he's an active trustee and director of several corporations, including those in healthcare and in the nonprofit sector. So, Charles, welcome back to the podcast. Charles, let's start with the economy. It's been a long, long time since we've seen inflation at this level. And then there's the looming recession. What do you see the board's role in providing guidance to management in the context of a volatile economy? Well, I think they just continue to do the same thing they always do, uh, which is monitor management effectively. Uh, Obviously, in a a high inflationary period, combined with the potential of a serious recession, they're going to be much more involved than they typically would be simply because the conditions will deteriorate. And as they deteriorate, whether it affects your your, your funding sources, a la your cost of your debt, uh, and obviously, in a recession, it, it has a tremendous impact, sadly, on the uh, top and bottom lines, well, inflation on the bottom line and top line, and I guess, obviously, safer slowdown. And so as you review what management's doing, uh, you're going to be a bit more sensitive to those issues than you would uh, be when things everything is going great. I mean, there's a, there's a real tendency when things are going great to sort of ignore warning signs and uh, allow things to proceed until something terrible happens. In a period of high inflation or recession, given the fact that uh, uh, things are, uh, are sort of inside out, you typically you find that human beings pay greater and greater attention. They should always pay greater, greater attention, but those sort of crisis periods, in, in fact, create a heightened sense of urgency. And I think that obviously why? Because there are problems. And I think the board needs to be sensitive to those issues and sensitive to how management's responding to it. Obviously, inflation or recession is certainly out of management's control, but how management deals with those two issues are clearly within their control. And that's what a board has to judge. You know, are they handling this effectively? Uh, you know, and obviously a time of, of spiking interest rates. Uh, is it a time to go out and finance? Is it a time to refinance? Or 
sort of lie and wait for uh, rates to return to uh, more normalized levels. And what do you do in the meantime? Uh, important thoughts. Uh, Charles, do you think it's, it's excessive oversight if the board leans in uh, asking questions of the CEO and of the chief legal counsel on issues like uh, Warren Act notifications, layoffs, things of that nature that they've read about in the paper and they want to double check with management that they're following the rules? You always have the right and responsibility to ask questions that concern you. Uh, again, your job is oversight and uh, oversight of, frankly, everything. Now, you know, are you going to ask questions about uh, the water bill? And, you know, are, are we making sure all the faucets aren't leaking? Probably not. But something like, as you've suggested, certain regulatory statutes that uh, obviously are important, but sometimes <clears throat> are not always thought about, uh, is certainly worth, worth asking. It's an appropriate topic to ask about. Uh, you get a, the correct answer, decent answer, then you move on. Uh, but I think absolutely in a, uh, a worsening climate, which is affected, uh, which affects, I should say, regulatory structures, it's perfectly within your right and maybe responsibility to ask those questions. Again, on things that you think about and understand, that's what the board's all about. You have different areas of expertise on a board. Some are more expertise in finance. Some have greater uh, legal background. You should take advantage, uh, and you're expected to take advantage of your uh, of your areas that uh, that you, in fact, have as you sit on a board. Charles, as we're taping this, the leading issue of the day appears to be based on the press and the news developments, uh, uh, China. Uh, to what extent do you see boards needing to monitor global economic developments on a regular basis, and maybe not just economic developments, but public health developments as well. How important is what's going on in China for boards? Well, as we saw the last time this happened, the beginning of the COVID crisis, it was very important because it was uh, seeing what was happening there uh, gave us some lead time, but obviously it was coming our way and we were going to have to deal with it. Uh, and obviously, too, as China is a significant supplier of, uh, of us, as we discovered during the whole COVID thing, the whole supply chain issues that appear, that it will potentially have a serious impact on us. And unrest there or disease there uh, it has a big impact because we're uh, interconnected. Again, a lot of our, our goods, supplies come from there. And suddenly, if they're not producing them, then we've got a problem. Uh, and obviously, this I think boards have to ask about how prepared are we? What are what is our backup plan, if any, for supplies of certain materials that come from there? Uh, from a political, you know, a geopolitical standpoint, obviously, Chinese actions vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan are concerning to us. Uh, again, most of the semiconductors, you know, come out of Taiwan. And they're, as we discovered also during the uh, the crisis, COVID crisis, they're quite necessary too for any kind of economic activity and, and, and growth. And how does that play itself out? Now, remember, though, we don't have the ability in this country to control what's going on over there. We only can react to it. The question from a board standpoint is, is management effectively reacting to what is put in front of them? Again, management has no control over inflation, no control over recession, no control over a, a, a Chinese COVID spike or, or, China, or, or, or Chinese military actions. But they do have control over how the company can react to it and how appropriately positioned are we to deal with it. 
I, I wouldn't say, say take advantage of it because it's not a situation you can take advantage of, but certainly in a position to uh, to react appropriately as these things develop because they are going to affect the way the business operates one way or the other. We, we're long, long away from a world where we're sort of an island here and, and whatever happens around the world has little impact on us. Uh, you know, someone can sneeze uh, in, in Beijing and uh, that affect uh, that ripple, as you know, can be felt certainly, uh, certainly here. And the same goes for them, by the way. You know, if something happens here, they have a lot of our debt, and uh, obviously, we're a big. So they're a big supplier to us. So we're both sort of, it, it, sadly, in many ways, interconnected. Charles, let's kind of shift over to the talent retention and uh, executive search and succession process because we've seen extraordinary numbers in 2022 of yeah. CEO resignation in a very fluid movement in the CEO spot. To what yeah. extent the board's obligation with respect to CEO retention changed? It became a, a bigger issue than simply the, the the board succession and search committee. Well, the succession and search committee, as you know, are based on uh, planned, basically planned succession. Someone retires uh, today. And this, this started probably 20 some odd years ago. Uh, boards are much active, more active than they used to be. And activity means obviously monitoring and necessary changing management. I mean, the tenure of a CEO, uh, which used to be uh, quite stable, isn't so stable anymore, given that the ability of the, the, the board and responsibility of the board to move someone along. Now, that being said, the board has an obligation for planned successions, which are your retirements, but they also have an obligation vis-a-vis unplanned successions, ILA. We, we, someone leaves for another place, they're terminated, and uh, what do we do in the meantime until we recruit someone uh, strong? And that's why one of the big responsibilities of the CEO is not to necessarily find a successor. That's not their job. It's the board's job. Their job is to have a strong bench beneath them uh, to in the event that the board decides in a, in a plan succession to look inside. There's a, there are a lot of competent people there, talented people there, or in an emergency, uh, a la someone dies, is terminated. You have someone there, a group of people there from to, to choose from to operate the business. And that support responsibility, too, is to ensure themselves that the CEO is doing that. You know, on an annual basis, certainly a review of your Section 16 officers or your senior officers and who is, you know, who is there to take over in an emergency who is being groomed, let's say, to take over the position permanently should that person leave. I mean, that's a, a very necessary for a board to do. And a board that ignores that is making a terrible mistake. And I don't think necessarily carrying out their monitoring obligations effectively. I mean, every so often, like I said, a lot of times, once a year, what talent is there? Are the, is the talent available to fill vacancies should they become, should it become necessary? And uh, if that happens, what do we do about it? Uh, that's something you have to you have to think about. So yes, as far as retention, uh, you know, I, I've always thought that that the idea of a CEO being poached, particularly laterally, is a little far fetched. It, it doesn't happen as much as people think it does because CEO skills are much more company specific than you think, and uh, and that actually explains a lot of the acceleration in CEO pay. Oh, we need to pay peer a peer, uh, a peer group pay to keep them from moving to a peer. They don't move to peers. Uh, it doesn't happen. There's an excellent study that was done by a research fellow at the Weinberg Center 
years ago uh, that showed that there is very little lateral movement. And when they do move laterally, they usually don't turn out very well. There is movement from big companies to smaller companies, a la someone leaves a bigger company and they get picked up by a smaller company. But uh, this notion of this active verbi market for CEO talent isn't really there in the same way you think. And so the idea of, oh, I better pay them a ton to retain them, not necessarily uh, the best approach because the odds of them being recruited to a similar business are, are slim to none. You've got all kinds of any, you know, uh, you know, any competitive, you know, competitive concerns that will not happen. Uh, and their skills are probably, you know, very basically uh, limited to their, their own business. And they're not, they're not changeable. I say except in college football, but that's a conversation. For except, well, but well, except in college football, again, or some may say general counsel can move around or CFOs move around. Those skills can be moved, but a CEO skills, which include yeah. advanced management, that's a lot harder. You got to really understand the organization. You're absolutely right. It's it's it, it, college baseball, football. Yeah. Uh, well, look, uh, listen, Brady went from uh, from Boston down to uh, Tampa, and uh, Tampa did pretty well. So. I guess he was interchangeable. There you uh, go. Well, let's stick on this issue generally for a second. And the boards, in the context of the board's oversight of workforce culture, yeah. there have been a lot of crazy uh, trends this year the great resignation, the job participation focus, uh, the uh, annoying things like quiet quitting. To what extent has that served, Charles, in your view, to sharpen the board's oversight obligations for workforce culture? Well, I mean, again, I mean, the fact that companies can't run without employees, they are the most important part of your organization. I mean, you've got, you have machinery, equipment, which is obviously critical, but you got someone to operate. And if people suddenly feel uh, that they, you know, are no longer happy doing that and they decide to, quote, reside, go somewhere else or uh, sort of contemplate themselves as opposed to going to work, you got a problem. Uh, and I think, hey, listen, you, you've help wanted signs you've seen out the last two, three years, two years since COVID kind of died down. have been really amazing. Restaurants are desperate for people. They, you know, they, they have to close certain sections because they can't get people to wait there. Or they can't get cooks. They can't. And that's a real problem uh, for any business. Uh, I think it, though, it begins to solve itself because you remember had loan programs or, or grant programs that exist during COVID that enabled people not to have to work. There is hard to take in as much because they were there was some support available. As those have disappeared and people have sort of you know started to go through their savings because you know during COVID there wasn't much to do <laughs> other than mm -hmm. sit there. Um, I think you're going to see that problem resolve itself as people need to come back to work. People go to work certainly because they get joy out of it and it's it's fun to be around, but they do it primarily to support themselves. And either you have the money to support yourself or you don't. And if you've blown through your savings, it's you're going to have to go back. And I think that, that's, that we will naturally have a return to the workplace. But boards, in the meantime, have to be very careful in overseeing how the CEOs do it, dealing with it. I mean, you know, a factory that can't get enough workers there to run, you know, run the shifts can't produce the product that the, that the uh, one part of the organization has created the demand for. If you can't meet the demand, then, you know, uh, you got some real problems. Many demand means having a full workforce. What are you doing to do this? Do you have, do you go to job fairs? Do you 
Have you do you have a benefit scheme that's attractive? How are you bringing people in? That's these are questions that any board should be asking today, given this particular issue. So I suppose it's probably going to re, re, you know, resolve itself uh, as we move along, and people, you know, ha- frankly, have to go back to work. Charles, let's go to a kind of a different issue. Um, we're past the midterms right now, but we're not past the volatility and political discourse in the country. Um, there has been a lot of discussion of the CEO and his or her social voice and the corporation's social voice. Uh, how do you see that changing in the coming year? Is Has it been affected? Will it increase? Will our people chastened now? Are boards chastened about having their CEOs out publicly on comments? They should be. It absolutely should be. Politics and business don't mix. I mean, for a lot of reasons. Number one, you take a political position that at least half your employees and investors will, will take issue with it. That's the nature of politics. In a country that's divided, you know, almost 49, 51, 51, 49, you're going to offend somebody, whatever you say. And the best advice is just don't talk about it. The nice thing about a business is it's a common enterprise that has one real goal in the end, which is which is success, making making a, a money a return for your investors, a good salary for your employees, and people, despite very different political beliefs and social beliefs, can agree on that. You know, what is the color of money? It's green. It, 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 it is what it is. And, and I think the nice thing about a business is you can disagree with someone tremendously politically, socially, but that the commonality of your goal makes it easy to work together. And frankly, more often people can work together and get to know each other. The softer the disputes, I think, become over political differences that, that you're not so, uh, uh, you don't think they're all that different. You get to see them every day. They look okay to me. And so we have big differences, so be it. But the injecting politics in the process as a way, I guess, of, I guess some would say marketing, or God knows what the, I mean, there's a, or, or ejecting your own views is a terrible mistake. It, because you're going to basically, you may get support from half the people, but half the people hate your guts for doing it. There's a story of a, of a governor of Georgia, Eugene Talmadge, who uh, was defeated for re-election in the 40s and then came back. Uh, and but before he could be sworn in, he had developed cirrhosis. We well, had cirrhosis for a long time and he was dying and he was in the Piedmont Hospital. And uh, someone came to see him and said, Governor, you are an amazing guy. And he says, what do you mean? And he said, well, you've got the entire state of Georgia for the first time praying at once for you. He yeah. said, really? He said, half praying you'll live, half praying you won't. <laughs> the, I mean, that that's what politics is about. That's how business should be. Business should be 99.9% applauding what, you, what you're doing. Your job is to make a good product at a fair price. That's it. And I, I think that hopefully that some of the controversy that we've seen this year over people stepping into the political uh, will will chasten boards to insist that their CEOs don't. There's not much. There's nothing to be gained by it in the end. It may you know it may further your own particular political position to feel like hey you know I've made this big company do it. But I'll tell you in the end the the, uh, the uh, tremendous uh, disputes that you create lack of goodwill amongst a good chunk of the people who invest with you and who uh who buy from you and who work for you it's just not it's just not worth it and uh and i think when people say well i have to take this position because social responsibility is very important as part of the business's purpose well social responsibility traditionally means living within the law and following the law that's socially 
what we've decided as a society through the democratic process is the way to operate things. And trying to affect change in that, in the business side, uh, is a problem because, you know, what is, in fact, appropriate social policy? It's better debated, discussed, and handled in a democratic fashion in before the uh, in an election or in Congress or in the courts, uh, not necessarily uh, in, the, in a corporate boardroom where CEO has basically none of the same checks on their opinions, if you will, or checks that we have in the regular political process. So. Well, let, let's. You mentioned the courtroom. Let's shift over to the courtroom for a second. Uh, yeah. This year, we've seen the two California cases uh, on diversity. Uh, and yeah. I think we're right now, as we're taping this today, we're waiting on the NASDAQ decision. Uh, what do you see the impact of the, how these cases are decided on the future of boardroom diversity, if at all? I don't. I've always thought a legal mandate for diversity is a really bad thing. Um, and that's why we have, because anytime you, you, you in my view, that you, you separate people out based on immutable factors, basically unrelated to their individuality. Uh, race, uh, gender, religion, et cetera, et cetera. That, that to me is these are things that uh, uh, certainly define a person in a way, but that but the individuality, individual character, and individual uh, 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 talent is something that is very important in this society, the respect for the individual. And we typically don't categorize people by immutable factors because that disregards the talent and potential of an individual. And I think the same thing can be said for these requirements uh, legally done. Uh, that I, I think that you, you basically, uh, first of all, you're telling your voters who they have to vote for on the basis of race, sex, et cetera, because, you know, the, well, this slot is, is this one and this slot is going to be that one or else. You've just uh, told the, the society or the, the voters, the, the owners, if you will, the citizens, that this is who you have to pick based on this immutable factor. And I, I just I don't I don't feel that's the way you get the best talent. And that's what people are looking for uh, on boards or in, frankly, in, 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 in political elections. And I think that uh, the, the judicial mandate, a legislative mandate is a bad way of doing it. Now, that being said. Uh, do I agree with diversity on boards? You bet I do. But I, I believe that the that that li limiting uh, who you're looking at based on an immutable factor, let's say a race or, or, or gender, really limits the pool from which you can draw from. And if you say, well, oh, this is only going to go to a male, this is only going to go to a female, you just excluded half the talent for that slot. I think you want to look for the broadest possible population, the, the broadest pool to choose from. Now, that being said, is in any giant pool, they're going to be talented people. And my gut is, if you rely on that that way, ultimately, you're going to come up with a very diverse group of people, diverse in experience and, 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 uh, and diverse in, in, in ways of looking at things. And that probably also includes diversity of those other factors. But you've got to deal with people as individuals. As a shareholder, I want the person stewarding my assets who's the best possible person out there. And I really don't care from what race back, that, that's it's an immutable factor, should be irrelevant in judging individual character. Character is, is the limited to the person themselves. If you get the best person, that's who you want. And I, I've always kind of looked at life that way. And frankly, I think if you go through life that way, you're going to find that your, your coterie of, of friends and places you've invested and places you live 
happen to be extremely diverse places because talent is so spread out in this country amongst so many, so many different groups of people. Charles, let's kind of shift now and to look at the tech world. Uh, I think a yeah. major uh, development this past year has been the advance of artificial intelligence in corporate operations across industry sectors. I'm very curious to get your views on whether you think boards are ready to exercise the necessary oversight uh, over AI. Well, uh, who knows? Maybe we'll develop AI and replace directors. Yeah. <laughs> Kind of the, the HAL computer of uh, the 2001 space odyssey of today. Uh, you know, look, AI is, is but another technical or technological development that may change the way business is done. Uh, listen, can you think of the idea of computerization, you know, 60, 70 years ago? I mean, before the, the IBM or the UNIVAC, if you really want to go far back. And, uh, you, know, you know, years before, how did boards confront that technology? How did boards confront the creation of the telephone or the telegraph, for that matter? Uh, you know, same thing. Any technological innovation that's going to change the nature of business dramatically, you got to think about one way or the other. How do we react to it? And I view AI as very similar to that. It, 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 some may argue that it's even more important or more sort of a, 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 a game changing than the earlier stuff. On the other hand, if you think about it, the ability to, to electronically communicate with someone thousands of miles away, uh, that must have been quite something when that came out. I mean, you know, you, you, it changed the nature of space, time, uh, et cetera. So I think it's something you just have to be aware of. Uh, do, you, do you need an expert on AI on your board? Not necessarily. I think you have to have someone who understands how the company's reacting to it. The key is, do we have any expertise within the organization on AI? That's the board's responsibility. Charles, as you and I have talked about in the past, we've seen a, a couple of new iterations of corporate governance principles and best practices come out in 2022. Yeah. I think most notably that from the uh, NECD. Are you seeing any indications from these uh, uh, principles that the pendulum of leadership authority is swinging one way or the other, either towards management or back to the board. Run that by me again. Are you seeing greater managerial domination over boards? I guess I would say, uh, as we see some of the new iterations of governance principles uh, coming out this year, are you reading them as pushing the boardroom control more towards management than directors are is one side or the other becoming more empowered based on the application of these new principles i think well particularly the es not the g but the es stuff i think has uh, has been a, a, a man is, is much more managerially centric than the traditional governance notions, which which are more board centric, I think that some of it, it's not just so much that the, the, the recommendations. It's sort of the focus on uh, stakeholder theory, as opposed to shareholder primacy. Because uh, under stakeholder theory, you're basically uh, giving a CEO a real pass, because in the sense that where traditionally, you know, accountability to investors was easy to measure, either you produced or you didn't. In a stakeholder uh, theory, sta stakeholder primacy, uh, the old joke goes, if my watch, an analog watch, stops, it still gets the time right twice a day. Uh, you know, it's, it's a broken watch, but at least it gets right into accounts. The problem with the stakeholder approach is no matter what you do, no matter how bad a decision you make, someone is going to be good for some of one of the stakes inadvertently. 
but that doesn't mean your watch is operating effectively or you have an effective business. And I think the the sort of push in that in that area, not in general governance principles, but this notion of uh, the stakeholder primacy over shareholder primacy, you lessen accountability and you, I think, encourage managerial uh, through the lack of accountability, managerial dominance of the over the process. And I think that you, you but you've seen this before. I mean. Years ago, when the stakeholder theory appeared during the first sort of anti-takeover and then anti-takeover wave, uh, it gave, basically gave the, the theory gave protection to, frankly, poor management who could explain everything away on one stake or another. Uh, ultimately, that created poor performance and a counter-revolution, which obviously was the corporate modern corporate governance movement. Uh, and I think you know this is just another one of those swings of the pendulum, you know, we swang to investor protection, which I believe in, and we started to swing back to stakeholder theory. But I think the the, the crummy results that stakeholder theory is going to create ultimately uh, results for everyone, by the way, because everyone today is a shareholder. It's a, a pension plans, pension funds, and retirement funds are really the primary equity holders in the world today. And if you uh, ding, if you ding the investor, you're dinging yourself, really, because everyone is all retires, expects to retire, gets dinged on this stuff. And I think the lack of accountability means that poor organization that can't survive. And ultimately, you lose your job, you get paid less, you get a crummy product. And that's why I've always believed in, in shareholder primacy, because I think in the end, that does create an organization that treats its employees well, that treats its customers and suppliers well, because the only way you're going to reach profitability is to have the buy-in in those stakes. And I think the last couple of years, the focus on stakeholder primacy as opposed to shareholder primacy is a mistake and will ultimately lead to uh, lead us away from the kind of boards and kind of results we want. But I think it swings back. That's my gut. But before we wrap up, Charles, a couple of quick questions and one kind of picking up on what you just said. It's been a little over a year since the Boeing decision in Delaware. Uh, from your perspective, have boards changed their information reporting systems to more specifically address what the court called mission critical risks? I think because of that decision and the, and the earlier decision on which it was based, uh, the Marchand Bluebell case, that um, I think boards are much more intensely focused on this. Because remember, under the old regime, uh, it basically was unless there was no program at all. There was there was no, like, little chance of liability with Boeing. The others, it's not necessarily the existence of a program; it's how effectively the board is overseeing that program. I think that's a that's a that's a sticky wicket because then is it you elevate form over substance? Oh, we're going to paper this to death to show that we you know we're 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 on top of it. But are you really on top of it? Uh, and I think that that demonstrates the flaw with Caremark originally. Because Caremark set the aspirational standards very high for boards, but it set the liability standard quite low. It's very tough to get liability against a board uh, for that. And what you've seen in Boeing is obviously a increase in the ability, the, 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 the chances of liability go up dramatically with the regime that doesn't look at the existence or non-existence of the program, but the effectiveness and board oversight thereof. And I think every board has been told about this, or a lot of boards have been through all sorts of client memos and you know discussions in all kinds of magazines and places. 
And I think there's a much more heightened concern about the the existence of the program and its efficacy. The concerns I have on it, frankly, if it if, if it's all liability based, you're not going to get you're going to get a lot of form over substance, and you're not going to get the sort of genuine oversight which you really need. And it's not just oversight; it's also tone at the top. I mean, that's really where it comes from. I just wrote an article about that for directors and boards. That that it, it it's the tone from the management that is percolate through the organization that really creates a compliance culture. It's not necessarily the existence or lack thereof of procedures. It's the kind of place you work. And that's the board's responsibility is to assure that the person running the thing is a person of some integrity. I think that's really your key, I've always thought. Last question, as we look towards 2023 and the issue of strategy, uh, you're obviously very, very familiar with the Biden administration's uh, focus on competition in the workforce and its enforcement of uh, anti-competitive activity really kind of across the spectrum. Uh, to what extent, Charles, has the, the Biden administration's ag- aggressive antitrust posture uh, affected or, or should it affect the, how the board looks at growth, inorganic or organic growth, and other strategic decisions? Should they adjust their thinking uh, in response to how aggressive the Department of Justice and the FTC have been? Well, obviously, if it's harder to merge by a company because of those regulations, it's something you have to think about for growth. And a lot of times you effectively buy future growth, if you will, through an acquisition. Uh, and sometimes, frankly, homegrown growth may be very difficult for various reasons, depending on where you are, locations available, retailing, let's say, things like that. Um, but, you know, any trust policy, frankly, uh, is a lot like uh, uh, the shifting sands of time. Uh, you know, you, you, when I was in law school, it was the very much the uh, anti-antitrust crowd was, were in control of the law and economics types who, who thought in the, in the presence of global markets, antitrust law has, was outdated, antiquated. It was less antitrust enforcement. Uh, prior to that, in the 70s, it was, you know, it was the vote. And, and, and then after, you know, after the Reagan years, uh, it, it kind of came came and went depending on the administration. Some were more focused on it, and others were not. And I think it's one of those deals that you have to respond to it as it now stands. But that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be like that in five years or four years. Administrations change, people come and go. I could, you know, it, it's almost the flavor of the month. I could tell you of more antitrust lawyers who've come and gone, uh, whose 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 business has come and gone and returned. And you can imagine that one of the sort of the great uh, gurus of corporate governance, Ira Milstein, became started as an antitrust lawyer. And when antitrust sort of found its way uh, into different areas, he migrated into uh, into different uh, different uh, pastures, if you will. My father-in-law uh, was an antitrust lawyer, and uh, you know, all of a sudden, in the eighties, it kind of dried up. Had to figure out something else. Became more of a general litigator. Uh, you know, it, it, it really varies. And I think boards have to be sensitive to the regulations that exist now and have to understand that an acquisition could, you know, obviously be squelched by uh, by a, a, a antitrust objection. But that objection three, four years ago may not exist. And, you you know, so you, you can't really, uh, quote unquote, plan around the presence of antitrust. It, 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 does, it comes and it goes. It really depends on how you how you um, how you define markets, how broad are markets, and the broader you view you take of the marketplace, 
the uh, more likely you're going to get uh, less antitrust enforcement. Narrow the market. Obviously, the more reason you have a chance you have of quote unquote dominance, and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, in the grocery store business, interestingly enough, most products are not branded. The pr- private labels dominate the market uh, in, in many product areas. Uh, and the question is, okay, if that's true, can you can you can you get rid of private label? It's not it, it, as a brand. It's not a brand. It just means there's a lot of stuff out there. They're lumped into that that category, uh, and so if you can you should you allow uh, brand, can you allow brands to be acquired by the same you know same folks when you have the existence of this huge quote unquote private market or a private label? Just something to think about. And we will think about these and other comments that you've given us, Charles. What a great uh, gift it has been. Uh, to have a conversation with you over the last couple of minutes and to our directors and officers and chief legal officers listening in today. We thank you very much for your time and for your expertise. And as always, your wisdom, Charles, thanks again so very much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be with you, as always. What a fascinating and timely conversation. Charles Elson has not only given us a comprehensive review of the leading governance issues of 2022, He's also shared with us his own inimitable, valuable perspective on these issues, as well as a glance as to what may be to come in 2023. All in all, that good foundation for first quarter board conversations. Thanks so much for joining us for today's episode of Governing Health. Be sure to subscribe to the full complimentary podcast series. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. And there you'll be able to stay up to date with all of our future episodes and re-listen to the old ones. Until then, I'm your host, Michael Pirogren, saying thanks for listening. This material is for general information purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice or any other advice on any specific facts or circumstances. No one should act or refrain from acting based upon any information herein without seeking professional legal advice. McDermott, Will & Emery makes no warranties, representations, or claims of any kind concerning the content herein. McDermott and the contributing presenters or authors expressly disclaim all liability to any person in respect of consequences of anything done or not done in reliance upon the use of contents included herein. Copyright 2022, McDermott, Will & Emery. All rights reserved. Any use of these materials, including reproduction, modification, distribution, or republication without the prior written consent of McDermott is strictly prohibited. This may be considered attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.